Turn to Hebrews chapter 1, please. Hebrews 1, verses 4 to 14. 4 to 14 will be our focus, though I will read the whole chapter to give us the context. <coughs> Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 1. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers, in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days has spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. And he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and upholds all things by the word of his power. When he had made purification of sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high having become as much better than the angels, as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. And of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. But of the Son, he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. And you, Lord, in the beginning laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the works of your hands. They will perish, but you remain. And they all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle you will roll them up. As a garment they will also be changed. But you are the same, and your years will not come to an end. But to which of the angels has he ever said, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Are they not all ministering spirits sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know from this passage that Christ is presented as the greatest and the exalted one above the prophets and above the angels. We pray that you'll show us that the identity of Christ, the person of Christ, the nature of Christ is very important for us to understand we must know who we believe. We must know in whom we have put our faith. So grant us understanding and grant us conviction and grant us greater faith to believe these truths because of what they mean for us in our salvation and what they mean for us when we proclaim the gospel to others. In Christ's name, amen. We saw last time from... Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, that Christ is compared to the prophets. And when he was compared to the prophets, we know that he is the Son of God and also the Son of Man. He was the Son, as it says in verse 2, and as the Son, he created the world, and he is the exact representation of God the Father as the Son of God. But as well, he came into the world to become a man and also to die on the cross, as it says in verse 3, when he had made purification of sins. He purified our sins by dying for our sins on the cross. Well, <clears throat> then 
our apostle here in Hebrews chapter 1, he transitions to also say that Christ is greater than the angels in verses 4 to 14. He's greater than the angels because among the Jewish people, among the people who believed in the Old Testament, they believed in angels, but they had put the angels in a wrong spot, in a wrong place in their day-to-day living and in their, their worship of God. They put the angels in the wrong place. From Colossians chapter 2, we read that even some of them were worshiping the angels. And they were thinking, maybe Christ is not equal with the Father. He does not possess deity. He does not have a divine nature. That he is just an angel. He's just that and not God himself or having a divine nature himself. However, if he is only an angel, he cannot be our Savior because when he dies on the cross as a man, and if he were an angel, it would not have eternal value and benefit and application for us and our sins that we might have eternal life. He has to possess a divine nature and also a human nature to pay a penalty. He has to pay a penalty with his human nature to be free from sin and pay that penalty on our behalf. This is why it is so important to understand this chapter of the book of Hebrews, but as well to understand these two natures of Christ. You see, we live in a world where many people say they believe in Christ. Many people say that they know who Jesus Christ was and is. There are many who say that. Jesus warned us of this in Matthew 24, 24. He said, in the last days, many false Christs will arise and will mislead many. In 2 Corinthians 11, 3-4, the Apostle Paul said that the Corinthians had infiltrators into their church saying that there was another Jesus, a Jesus that the Apostle wasn't preaching, but another Jesus, a different spirit and a different gospel, that they didn't need to believe what the Apostle Paul was preaching. This goes on and on throughout all ages, that the identity of Christ is mistaken, and when we mistake the, the identity of Christ, we cannot benefit from the ministry of Christ. That is why he came into the world to die on the cross. In our day, we have many, many who misunderstand the identity of Christ. Some of the most obvious ones that we perhaps have encountered are Jehovah's Witnesses who say that Jesus is Michael the Archangel, so he's an angel, the first and foremost creation of God. That Jesus is an angel, he is important, but he does not have a divine nature, they say. Mormons say that Jesus is one God, among many, many, numerous, and millions upon millions of gods. Jesus is just one among the many. Among the Muslims, for example, they say Jesus had a human nature, but he did not have a divine nature. No divine nature at all, just a human nature. And even his human nature, Jesus never died on the cross. It just appeared that he died, but he did not really die, they say. And you can go on and on with many, many misunderstandings about the identity of Christ. But we cannot 
have any mistaken idea about the identity of Christ because his identity is related to his ministry. His identity is related to his ministry. So this is why the apostle takes pains in verses 4 to 14 to reiterate again and again who Christ was and is. He possesses a divine nature. Let's see that in our study. Let's see that starting at verse 4. In verse 4, he says that Christ has become as much better than the angels as he has inherited a more excellent name than they. He's much better than angels. He's now introducing <coughs> the greatest deterrent, the greatest false identity of Christ, that Christ would be called an angel, a mere angel, a created being. And he says he's much better than that, much better than an angel. And who could be much better than an angel but the creator of the angel, the, of all the angels, and the Son of God himself, the second person of the Trinity. So he begins his argument in verses 4 and following, firstly making an assertion, and then he will prove his assertion with a series of quotes from the Old Testament. He will quote the Old Testament in seven passages in order to prove who Christ was and is. Passages that are from the literature or from the holy writings of the Hebrew people or the Jewish people themselves. Those who claim to believe in the books of Genesis to Malachi. He's saying, I will show you from our own books, from our own books from the Old Testament, that Jesus or Christ is this Messiah, the Son of God, all predicted in the Old Testament, going from Moses and throughout the prophets. He's going to show from these many quotations. He is amassing evidence and saying, this is what you should know, and this is what you should believe. We all knew that our Messiah, our Christ, our anointed one, was going to fulfill all of these passages. Now it has happened, so don't turn back and don't turn away from who he is. Verse 4, he says that he has, Christ has inherited a more excellent name than they. That's his argument, first argument. He has a better name, a more excellent name than the angels. Angels are called angels, and a the word angel means a messenger. There are heavenly messengers and human messengers. But notice in verse 5, what is the name that Christ has in verse 5? For to which of the angels did he ever say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? The question, it's a rhetorical question that they cannot answer because the only way they could answer it would have to be in the negative to no one. The key word there is ever. For to which of the angels did he ever say? Did God ever identify one angel and say, You are my son, today I have begotten you? No, he has not done so. He has done so toward his son, from Psalm 2, verse 7, from Psalm 2, verse 7, written by David as a prophecy of what dialogue would happen between the Father and the Son. This is the Father, 
speaking to the Son. In Psalm 2, verse 7, it says, He said to me, that is, the Son is declaring, the Son of God says, The Father said this to me. And what did God the Father say to the Son? You are my Son. My Son. If we cross-reference this, notice my Son. He did not say, I have sons, or anything like that in the plural. This was a very significant point as noted in John chapter 5. In John chapter 5, there's a controversy about the Sabbath day. And the Jews have a misunderstanding. Jesus has the correct understanding. And they're looking for a way to persecute him and even to kill him. In John chapter 5, Jesus, in order to defend his actions on the Sabbath day, John 5, 17, but he answered them, my father is working until now. Now I myself am working. We see there that Jesus says, my father. He does not say our father. He says, my father. In the Lord's Prayer, he taught us to say our father, so that in the plural, we are sons of God, we are children of God, we inherit a kingdom that he has granted to us. But in this case, notice in John 5, 17, he says, my father is working. Why would Jesus say my father? Because he has a unique relationship to his father. He is, has a more excellent name than anyone else, any created being, whether angels or men, who might call God father. And that's the significance of you are my son. That's why God said in Psalm 2, 7, the father said to the son, you are my son. Uniquely, you are my son. We know that the Jews understood the significance of, the significance of this because in John 5, 18, notice, John 5, 18, for this cause or reason, therefore the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him because he not only was breaking the Sabbath, but was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Jesus, when he said, my father, they knew he was saying that in a unique, special way, and they were wanting to kill him for that, because calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. That's the significance of you are my son. And the Jews knew that. They could not argue for it. That's why he asked in, in Hebrews 1.5 this rhetorical question with the obvious answer. God hasn't said this to anybody else. Only to his unique son. His one and only son. As well. Hebrews 1.5 says, Today I have begotten you. According to Acts chapter 13, and especially verse 33, Acts 13.33, when the Apostle Paul quotes this same passage, Psalm 2.7, he says that this was a prediction of the resurrection of Christ. Today I have begotten you means that I will beget you as my, the firstborn from the dead, as it says in Colossians chapter 1 that Jesus Christ is the firstborn from the dead, and you are my son, and as my son, you will die on the cross. So there's his humanity. You will die on the cross, 
and then you will be begotten from the dead. You, you will be the firstborn from the dead, the first immortal, glorified human ever to rise from the dead. And you will be the model, and you will be the pattern of all of those who are united in you. We also, therefore, will rise from the dead. That's the sense in which he said, today I have begotten you, in the sense of his resurrection. Again, that's Acts 13, 33. So we may say, we may say and agree right here that God has not said this of any angel. He has not said this of any human. He has only said this in reference to his one and only Son, the Son of God. A second passage in verse 5, he says, And again, I will be a father to him, and he shall be a son to me. This is 2 Samuel 7, 14. 2 Samuel 7, 14. In that passage, David wanted to build the temple, and God tells him that he will not build the temple, but his son Solomon will build the temple, and that David will have an eternal kingdom. Solomon will build the temple, not David, but because of God's grace on David, David would have a dynasty that would not end. Now, in a sense, Solomon was a son, and God was a father to Solomon. That is true. And to all of us, he is in that sense. But David... After this declaration in 2 Samuel 7, he prays a, a very grateful prayer to God, recognizing his own humility, his own nothingness, and how God has been gracious to him to grant him an eternal kingdom. An eternal kingdom. Now, David knew, therefore, that when God said, I will be a father to him and he shall be a son to me, that David was being promised to have a single descendant who would be called later the son of David, who would be Christ and have an eternal kingdom. The eternal kingdom was not given to David specifically. It was not given to Solomon specifically, but to his one descendant. That's why David gushes out in gratitude to God after God makes this announcement in 2 Samuel 7, he prays a prayer of thankfulness that God would give his name to be associated with the Messiah, the Christ. And they knew that. The Jews knew that. They interpreted these passages that way. We know this because of some of the comments throughout church history, throughout the history of the world for that matter, that Whenever they comment on these significant Davidic passages, they always interpret them in reference to Christ, to Messiah, to the coming anointed one. They always did that. They did that in Psalm 89. They did that in Psalm uh, 72. They did that in Psalm 45. They did that in um, Psalm 132. They did that in many, many places. You have brief comments and sometimes lengthy comments by Jewish commentators who don't believe that Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, yet they believe that those passages being quoted in our passage right here, in Hebrews 1, do indeed refer to the Messiah. So what do we gather? We gather that he's making these arguments 
these arguments that they know to be true, if they were honest with them, themselves and the facts, that these passages apply to Christ. Only Christ is uniquely the Son of the Father. Furthermore, verse 6, And when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, And let all the angels of God worship him. When he again brings the firstborn into the world. The firstborn is another name for Christ. Another name for Christ, as we saw in verse 2, that he is the heir of all things. When the Bible says firstborn, many times it is used metaphorically. Sometimes it's literal, and sometimes it's metaphorical. We know it's metaphorical because Christ was not the first creation. He's not the first thing created in the world. Though cults say that, that's not true. Christ was not the first created thing. And, and then he thereby created all other things. Firstborn means he is the inheritor of all things. We have examples of firstborn use, uh, being used as a metaphor. For example, in um, Jeremiah 31, verse 9. In Jeremiah 31, 9, God is preaching, and, uh, or Jeremiah is preaching, uh, and it says that God has considered Ephraim to be his firstborn. Ephraim to be his firstborn. Ephraim was the name of the, one of the sons of Joseph. He was not the firstborn son of Joseph, literally, and he, although he was one of the biggest tribes, he was not the firstborn of all of the sons of Jacob or the descendants of Jacob. So there was no literal sense in which Ephraim was the firstborn. But because Ephraim became a term of endearment of those who really know me and believe in me, God said, I call Ephraim, the people of God who truly know me, I call them Ephraim, and I treat them as though they are my firstborn. That's Jeremiah 31.9. So we see that there are times when there is another sense in which the term firstborn is used. That's the way in which it's meant here, in our passage, Hebrews 1.6. And when he again, there's debate on whether again means um, coming in the second coming of Christ or whether this was in the first coming of Christ. I take it in terms of the second coming of Christ. And it says, when he again brings the firstborn into the world, he says, and let all the angels of God worship him. When Christ returns, <coughs> he, will, he will have all angels and all people worship him. We know the familiar passage from... Philippians 2, 5 to 11, every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Those that are in uh, heaven, those that are on the earth, and those that are under the earth, the apostle says, they all will worship him. And that's what's happening here. All angels, therefore, will worship Christ. They do worship him and they will worship him when he comes back into the world in his second coming. It doesn't say all other angels will worship him. All of them will worship him. All angels whatsoever exist will worship him. Even the demons will have to submit to him. 
Even the demons will have to submit to him. All angels. Now we may ask, now what passage is he quoting? There is some uncertainty. There was some uncertainty in years past, but after the the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we found both Greek, well, there was Greek evidence of it, but we found Hebrew evidence in the Dead Sea Scrolls that this is actually a quote from Deuteronomy 32.43. Deuteronomy 32.43, where Moses predicts the second coming of Christ when all the nations are going to rejoice and all the angels will worship Christ. Moses predicted that in Deuteronomy 32.43. And until that became more definitively known, other scholars thought that this was a quote from Psalm 97.7. Those are the two alternatives. Whatever the case, we know that it is all angels worshiping Christ. Christ, therefore, must possess a divine nature, must possess deity, for him to be worshipped by all the angels. Otherwise, this would be idolatry for Christ to be worshipped if he did not possess a divine nature. Next, we turn to verse 7. In verse 7, there is a contrast. Things were said of Christ in verses 5 and 6, but now things are said of angels in verse 7. What about the angels then? The natural question, who are they? What is their function? He will speak of them in verse 7 and also in verse 14. Verses 7 and 14 actually go together. Of the angels, he says, who is he, the speaker? God the Father. Of the angels, he says, who makes his angels winds and his ministers a flame of fire. This is a quote from Psalm 104, verse 4. Psalm 104, verse 4. And similar statements are made in a couple of other places in the Old Testament. So, from this quote from the psalm, he's saying, God the Father is saying about what he does or how he uses angels. He makes angels winds and his ministers, a synonym for angels, a flame of fire. That is, God sends out his angels in different forms, and he even makes them into winds and flames of fire. This is what he does. He does things like that with angels in miraculous ways. They manifest themselves in different forms, sometimes in human form, sometimes in, in terms of wind and fire. Remember in 2 Kings chapter 6, Elijah, or Elisha and his servant were out, and there was an army also surrounding them. And his servant was afraid, and Elisha said, don't be afraid, there's more for us than uh, for them. And then Elisha prayed that God would open up the eyes of his servant so he could see all of the angels all around. And he saw that the angels, and he saw a mighty army of angels manifested to his eyes. So God is able to make angels appear in different forms, in different ways. But why do they appear like that? Because notice, they are his ministers. It said in verse 7, his minister. What is a minister? The root word, uh, meaning of this word is to serve, to serve, to help somebody else. 
And that's what he says again in verse 14. What are these angels? Why are angels created? They are, are they not all ministering spirits? They are invisible spirits. Are they not ministering spirits in their natural form, invisible, sent out to render service for the sake of those who will inherit salvation? Angels have that as their function. They have the function of helping you and me with our salvation. You and me to do what we need to benefit, to endure this uh, life, to endure the afflictions of this life, so that we might inherit salvation. That's what they do to help us. In fact, you might recall that Jesus spoke this way in Matthew chapter 18. In Matthew chapter 18, Jesus spoke of how angels are there for us. Matthew 18 and verse 10. He says, See that you do not despise one of these little ones, meaning us, for I say to you that their angels, our angels, in heaven continually behold the face of my Father who is in heaven. The angels are constantly in the presence of the Father, looking at His face and waiting for their orders to help us. To help us throughout our life and our salvation. To inherit our salvation. Now let's turn back to verse 8. Turn back to verse 8. And we have continually here from verses 8 and following... God the Father still speaking. This is a very important point. It is God the Father who is speaking, and at this point in verses 8 to 12, He's saying these things about His own Son, but He's also saying them directly to His Son. That's key. Verse 8. But of the Son, He says, that is, the Father says about or of His own Son. He says, quoting Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Psalm 45, 6 and 7. Your throne, O God, is forever and ever, and the righteous scepter is the scepter of your kingdom. You have loved righteousness and hated lawlessness. Therefore, God, your God, has anointed you with the oil of gladness above your companions. The Father, in Psalm 45, addresses the Son, the Son of God, and calls the Son of God, in verse 8, God. The Father, God the Father, calls His own Son God. Why? Because He has a divine nature also. He has a divine nature, and He's making that evident to us. Not only does He have a divine nature, being called God, but His throne is forever. He has a righteous scepter. He loves righteousness. He hates lawlessness. He is anointed with this oil of gladness above his companions. We note from Isaiah 61, 1-3, and Acts 10:38, this anointing, this special anointing that Christ has is the anointing of the Holy Spirit. This anointing of the Holy Spirit, no one else has had in the way in which Christ was anointed by the Holy Spirit. That's the unique application, unique reference, uh, of this passage, it is a re referral or a reference to Christ and Christ alone. And it's God the Father saying that about 
Christ, his son. By the way, this is one of seven passages, Hebrews 1.8, is one of seven clear passages in the New Testament where Jesus of Nazareth is called God, by that term, God. This is one of seven places throughout the New Testament. It is not something unique to this passage. It's not something unique or made up by the apostle who wrote the book of Hebrews. It's not like that. We have to step back for a minute here. You know, there are many people who think that the Trinity or the doctrine of the deity of Christ, the divine nature, was a made-up doctrine, something invented by religious fanatics, Christian fanatics, three, four hundred years after the time of the apostles. And then they imposed their will by creeds and confessions and placed them on the people and kind of stiff-armed them and twisted their arms in order to make them believe in a certain way, and they colluded with the Roman Empire and with Constantine and so on and so forth in order to establish a form of Christianity that did not exist in the first century, and let alone did anybody think that the Messiah, the Christ, would be called God or Lord or have a divine nature. That thought is actually not unique just to modern liberalism and modern skepticism or even false religions like Hindus and Muslims who say these same kinds of things. No, it's not unique to them. But it was even among the Jewish skeptics of the first century, they did not want to believe that Jesus possessed a divine nature. They refused that constantly. Just read the book of John, which has many, many examples of that very fact, that the Jews of the first century did not want to acknowledge that Jesus standing right before them had a divine nature. And so what is being combated here when Hebrews 1.8 quotes Psalm 45 where the Father calls the Son God, he's trying to show, you know, if you are honest with yourself, you know, my Jewish friends, you know that all of these passages from the Old Testament are messianic and that we were looking forward to him having these titles and that we were going to enjoy his presence as God in human flesh. You knew that, but now you are denying that or you're wayward and you're wondering if what you have become, uh, uh, begun to believe is actually the right belief or not. So he writes to say, yes, it is the right belief. You know, and you know because it's consistent with the numerous passages of the Old Testament. Well, not only is it that Christ is called God by God the Father, but notice in verse 10, He's called Lord. And you, Lord, the Father is still speaking, and you, Lord, and this Lord, according to the passage being quoted, Psalm 102, specifically verses 25 to 27, in Psalm 102, the only Lord that we could be speaking of is the true Lord. The Lord called Yahweh or Adonai or Jehovah in the Old Testament. That term, Lord, is being cited here in Hebrews 1.10. So that the Father is calling His Son by that unique name of God that God declared to Moses, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the sons of Israel, I am, or Yahweh, has sent me to you. 
Exodus 3, 14, and 15. That is the name right here that the Father is calling the Son. Of course, we're talking Greek in the New Testament, so the Greek equivalent to that is what we have in Hebrews 1.10, which is the Greek term kurios. And let's see, what is, it, what is it that the Father identifies that Christ did? In the beginning, you laid the foundation of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. The Father attributes creation to His one and only Son. The Son of God, by the lips of the Father, He is the creator of the universe. Just as we saw in Colossians 1, 15 to 18. He's the creator of the universe, and just as we saw in verse 2, Hebrews 1, 2. Through whom the Father, through whom also He made the world. The world was made through the Son of the Father. Another attribute that God ascribes to the Son is His eternal nature, His everlasting eternal nature. Eternality is attributed by the Father to the Son. Notice verses 11 and 12. They will perish, that is the creation. Why does it perish? This implies that God created it perfect, but then sin entered into the world and then God is going to destroy everything, they will perish, but you remain. They all will become old as a garment, and as a mantle, you will roll them up. As a garment, they will also be changed. That is, when in the return of Christ, 2 Peter chapter 3, when He returns, Christ will destroy the present heavens and the present earth with fire, with intense heat. He will destroy everything that is here and recreate the heavens and the earth. There will be a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. That's the same argument here. This creation, the physical creation, is temporary. It's temporary in its form and existence. But notice who is eternal. Verse 12, but you are the same. And in verse 11 he says, but you remain and your years will not come to an end. Christ's years will not come to an end. He's not speaking of Christ's 33 and a half years of life on the earth. He's talking about Christ's divine nature. He's talking about how eternal He is. He was never created from eternity past. He existed as deity when He was on the earth, though He also had a human body, a human nature. And then in eternity future, He will always exist as deity with a divine nature. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, three persons, one God. That's what's being declared here by the lips of God the Father. So when anyone says that Christ does not have an equal nature with the Father, how can they say that when the Father Himself says that Christ has an equal nature with Himself? It, it, you have to acknowledge it because it's coming from the mouth of God the Father. And then finally, verse 13. Verse 13. But to which of the angels has He ever said? Has God the Father ever said, another key word, to any angel, sit 
at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? This passage too, Psalm 110, was interpreted messianically by the Jews up until this time and even after this time of the first century. There are Jewish interpreters who say, yes, that is a messianic psalm, Psalm 110, written by David, but David is recording this dialogue between God and his Christ, his son, his only son. And so he says, to which of the angels has he ever said this? Has God ever said to an angel, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet? Who are the enemies of this one who's seated at the right hand of the Father? That's the same issue in Psalm 2. You are my son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me, and I will give the nations as your inheritance, and the ends of the earth as your possession. Do homage to the son, kiss the son, lest he become angry and you perish in the way. How blessed are all who take refuge in him. You see, that is spoken of Christ, just as Psalm 110 is spoken of Christ. And between Christ's first coming and second coming, he is seated at the right hand of the Father until that day, on the day of the second coming, that Christ makes his enemies a footstool for his feet. So between the first coming and the second coming, he is seated at the right hand. No angels are, no humans are, only the Son is. And he reigns, and when he reigns, he is the sovereign over the world, and then he will come back to judge the world, to take up his people, to grant them a resurrection body, a glorified body, and to, do, uh, and to destroy all the wicked and send them into the lake of fire. That's how he will make his enemies a footstool for his feet. These words are quite clear. They have never been said of any angel any human, no one like that. These are only words that apply to the Son of God. Only the Son of God. And these are the words of the Father, saying them of the Son and to the Son, His own Son, His unique Son. No one else. So let's believe in Christ like this. Have confidence in Christ like this, that He was this way and is this way, and He has to be this way, for our salvation. Otherwise, our salvation is temporary. Our salvation is nothing. Our salvation cannot lead to eternal life. It has nothing to do with forgiveness unless we believe that Jesus was and is the eternal Son of God. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.